Good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church, fo- focused primarily up at, up at our North Seattle Expression that's been gathering together on Sunday mornings uh, since February, and God has been very gracious towards us. We have much to be encouraged about uh, up there, but I do always enjoy coming back to Fremont and, and joining you in this way in particular as we open our Bibles together and explore God's Word. And so let's do that now. Let's dive right in. Now, a few weeks back, Pastor Andrew, uh, he mentioned a couple of things about the movie called The Matrix, and it got me thinking about that movie, uh, especially in light of what I've been studying this week and what we'll be talking about today. The Matrix, you see, it's one of my favorite movies ever. If you haven't seen it, you really should. It's a science fiction movie. It's kind of an action thriller of sorts, and what I really love about this movie is uh, it has many very compelling spiritual themes that are kind of interwoven throughout this storyline. And in this storyline, all of humanity, you see, they were going about living their lives day in and day out, thinking everything was normal, thinking they were free to make real choices and live their own lives as they wanted. But what they thought was real was, in fact, far from it. You see, it turns out there was a a reality behind the reality. And so what they thought was real was actually only a small part of a much bigger picture that they could not see. In fact, what they could not see is that they were being controlled and, and manipulated and blinded, really, to the truth about their own condition. They were living in this sort of virtual reality, this false reality known as the matrix, and they did not know it. But you see, some of these people, they could actually sense deep down that that something was not right. They sensed deeply at times that there was more to reality than that which they were experiencing. And somehow, a small group of these people together, they were able to kind of break out of this false reality. And and when they did, they were able to finally see that they, they had been captive all along. They had been captive to an enemy that they did not know existed who wanted to keep them from the truth. And once this small group of people figured this out and began to see the truth about the matrix, it it became their mission to kind of go back into the matrix and, and rescue others too and to expose this lie that was being perpetrated on humanity. In one scene, the leader of these liberated humans, his name was Morpheus, he was able to make contact with a person whose mind was still being controlled by the Matrix. This man's name was Neo. And the first time these two met one another, listen to what Morpheus said to Neo. He said, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's this feeling that's brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about, Neo? The Matrix, Neo asked. Morpheus said, the Matrix is everywhere. It's all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. The truth that you are a slave, Neo. 
Like everyone else, Neo, you were born into bondage, he says, born into a prison that you cannot see or smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind, Neo. And Morpheus, he took out two pills, one red pill and one blue pill, and he said, he said, you take the blue pill, Neo, and the story ends here. You wake up in your bed tomorrow morning and you go on believing whatever it is that you want to believe. But you take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland with me. And I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes, he says. I'm offering you nothing more than the truth, Neo. Now, Neo chose the red pill, and his journey began from there. And as it did, his eyes were finally opened to see his own true condition and to see that his entire life really was, was not at all what it had seemed. And he began to see that there was an unseen battle being waged. It was a battle over freedom, and it was a battle over the truth. And friends, in a very interesting way, Jesus and the entire New Testament paints a picture for us that has some pretty fascinating similarities to what you just heard. In many ways, as we begin to talk about Christmas this week and over the next few weeks in this Advent series, we're going to see Jesus showing up in this world and in our lives, saying that your condition and my condition and the condition of every person on this planet is not at all what they seem. Jesus shows up with a, a pretty interesting message. In fact, he shows up in this world saying really that there's, there's a reality behind the reality that we're unable to perceive or experience on our own. Jesus shows up saying, you've been born into bondage. You are living within a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. You've been deceived and misled by this enemy who wants to keep you from the truth. But this Jesus also shows up saying something else. He shows up also saying, I've come to do something about it. I've come to help you see the truth about your own condition and about these enemies who you face. And I've come to help you break out of the false reality that has been pulled over your eyes. Now, we don't normally think of Christmas in these terms, really, but the Bible tells us quite clearly that one of the primary reasons that Christmas happened, one of the main reasons that Jesus came to us in the way that he did, was not only to give something, it was also to take something away. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, which is our passage for the evening, the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John, he could not be any more clear when he said this. He said, the reason that the Son of God appeared, he said, the reason, not a reason, he says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's our Advent passage. That's our Christmas message for today, and it's really all about destruction, it's about Jesus coming to destroy the evil that is at work in this world and to destroy the evil that is at work in the human heart. Surely when you look around, you can see that something needs to be done in this world. Some things need to be uh, dealt with and some things need to be destroyed if things are ever to be set right. But I hope you also realize that we're not talking about a strictly uh, external thing here, right? I hope you realize there's something inside of you today and something inside of me today that, that needs to be eradicated too. 
This is why John Piper would say that the people who will experience the fullest meaning of Christmas this year will be the people who know and feel that there is something inside of them that needs to be destroyed. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said, In a sense, I've come to save not those who think they are well, but those who know they are sick. And so the people who will most experience and most embrace Christmas this year for what it truly is are people who know deep down that they are sick and who want desperately to have that sickness destroyed once and for all. And so are you one of those people today? Can you say that with honesty about yourself? I think every Christian should be able to see that about themselves and also to say that about themselves. Friends, if you read your Bible, if you study your Bible, there is simply no missing this theme of war, both an outer war and an inner war with Satan, with, with sin, with our flesh, and with this world. What the Bible shows us is that there's an ongoing battle being waged between God and Satan, and between Satan and humanity, and that battle is playing itself out within the human heart. And in this world around us, each and every day, as we saw recently, the battle started in Genesis chapter 3, and the battle will end, we're told, but we're told it will not end completely until Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is fully and finally destroyed. And so what that means, interestingly, is that the only times in the Bible where there is perfect peace and, and perfect harmony with God and between, between men and women is in the first two chapters of the Bible before the serpent showed up in the garden. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, when Jesus comes a second time and puts this enemy down for good. But everywhere in between, including here in the city of Seattle in the year 2017, the battle is ongoing in our hearts and for our hearts. The battle is ongoing in our culture and for our culture. And as part of this battle, the Bible tells us that when we look around at all the problems that plague this world, we're reminded that there is indeed a, a reality behind the reality. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In fact, according to Paul, life on this earth and the, the present darkness that you and I experience as the human condition, with all the struggle and strife and suffering, with all the injustice and oppression, with all the hatred and violence and murder, the Bible says that this present darkness that we see and experience and read about each and every day, Paul says that underneath it all, driving and energizing it all are spiritual forces of evil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that the God of this world, that's Satan, that's the biblical, a biblical name for Satan, and that's very telling. The passage says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul talks about a veil that covers the hearts and minds of people 
and keeps, keeps them in the dark. A veil that remains unlifted, the passage says, apart from Jesus and apart from the gospel. In Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul makes clear that nobody at all, nobody on their own, is able to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And so these passages, they're talking about spiritual blindness here, a spiritual blindness, blindness that Satan and sin propagate and perpetrate all across this planet. These passages are talking about a profound darkness that has been pulled over the eyes of humanity to blind us to the truth about God and to the truth about ourselves and our own condition. Jesus talked a lot about this. The Bible talks a lot about this too. And when, when Jesus and the Bible talk about this, the consistent message about spiritual blindness is that it's universal. As a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, every person since then has been born into spiritual blindness. But not only that, everyone also, without exception, we're told in the Bible, is born into spiritual bondage too. By this, I'm referring not to the blinding works of the devil. Rather, I'm referring to the binding works of the devil. Did you ever notice that what you think you want most of all in your life, the more you want something in your life and the more you go after that something with all that you've got, the more control that something begins to have over you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 tells us that one of the snares of the devil is being captured by him to do his will without even knowing it. This enemy, he lies, he tempts, he accuses, he manipulates, he distracts, he intimidates. He does whatever it takes to keep those who don't know Jesus from ever meeting Jesus. And he does whatever it takes to keep those who follow Jesus to shift their trust and their focus to anything but Jesus. And he is always looking for an opening if you're willing to give him one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think one of the ways this enemy captures and devours people is very slowly, very subtly through our own desires and even through our own hopes and dreams. After all, the human heart is never idle. It has to be giving itself to something. It has to be pouring itself out into to something or someone. Every one of us, in fact, is looking to something and pursuing something to give our lives meaning and to make our lives seem significant and worthwhile. And our identities and our very sense of self and our sense of significance, they, they become interwoven with these things that we tell ourselves we have to have. And what happens is we end up over time cooperating unknowingly in our own oppression. You want that powerful career? You want that perfect relationship or family? You want that perfect body? You want that status or that reputation? You can have that. Just make it the most important thing to you. Put everything into it. Look to it for your value and for your worth. Allow it to define you. And you can have those things. 
The truth is we enter into agreements like these, pacts really like these, quite often in our lives without having any idea that we've done so. And then as we give ourselves over to the things that we put ultimate value in, we're slowly and subtly seized and, and controlled by them. And little by little, slowly and subtly, you'll find that even as you achieve the very things that you thought would make everything right in your life, it's, it's still never quite enough. You can't quite seem to get there. Even though you may attain exactly what you thought you wanted and needed most in your life, you find that underneath it all, you're still unsettled. There's an undercurrent of anxiety and fear and insecurity when you put your trust and your hope in the wrong things. If Christ is not the most important thing you're seeking after in your life, you're dealing with the devil in one way or another, and he will lead you down a path that will eventually have you asking many questions and and wondering why in the world you still feel the way that you feel. Even though you reached that goal, and even though you accomplished that dream, As we offer ourselves to things other than the God who created us, we end up living in a kind of illusion of independence when in reality we slowly become slaves to those very things. And so not only does the devil blind us, he binds us as well. Slavery language is in fact used extensively in the New Testament to to explain our condition and, and to explain how this enemy works. In Luke chapter 4, we're told that shortly after Jesus started his public ministry, he returned to his hometown, and he was invited into the synagogue to, to teach. You see, they wanted to hear from Jesus. His popularity, you see, was really taking off, and they wanted to see for themselves what all this hype was about. In fact, what goes down in Luke chapter 4 is the very first sermon ever preached by Jesus that's recorded in the Bible. And Jesus did something in the synagogue that day that shocked everyone who was there. We're told he stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And this chapter of the book of Isaiah, you see, this is a prophetic passage. It's a passage that speaks about this mysterious promised one, this Messiah who God, was go- who God said was going to come and who God said would make right all that seemed to have gone so terribly wrong in this world. Listen to the language of this passage that Jesus spoke that day. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says, Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him, you see, because they were waiting for him to explain the text. They were waiting for him to give his sermon because that's how it usually worked. But all Jesus said was this, He said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus doesn't really explain the text at all. Instead, what he seems to say is this text is talking about me. 
I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so he doesn't give a sermon at all. Instead, basically, he says, I am the sermon. My life is going to be the sermon. And that's a pretty staggering claim made by Jesus. It's a pretty audacious claim made in that moment. Jesus is saying, I'm the promised one, and this is what I've come to do. I've come to open the eyes of the blind. I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I've come to set captives free from all that binds them. Now, the Jewish people of that day, they would have thought, if this Jesus really is the Messiah, then surely this means he's come for us. He's come to liberate us from the Romans, right? They're the enemy. They're evil. We're the captives. We're the oppressed. If all this is true, then it must mean Jesus has come to take down the Romans and to liberate us from them. You see, their expectation was that this promised Messiah would come in that type of power and with that type of purpose. But the truth is, they were missing the point. And many of them would continue to miss the point, even to this very day. Jesus would make clear during his ministry that his His message and his mission was not at all about liberating the Jewish nation from the Romans. Rather, his mission was to really liberate the human heart and to open eyes and to bring light into the darkness that people might see God for who he really is and that people might see through this enemy and his lies. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He exposed and destroyed the works of the devil He did this in his life and by his death and through his resurrection. You see, during his life, Jesus squared off against the devil and his demonic forces early and often. They knew that Jesus had come and they knew that he was the Son of God. The Bible makes this clear. But they did not know what God was up to or what Jesus might do next. The mission of Jesus remained in every way a mystery to Satan, and Satan, perhaps in a desperate attempt to derail Jesus before his uh, public ministry even had begun, he went after a weakened Jesus in the wilderness, we're told in Matthew chapter 4 and elsewhere. Satan assaulted Jesus in the wilderness with temptation and with lies, twisting and distorting God's word, just as he had done in the garden with Adam and with Eve. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus passed the test. And after he did, Jesus would then really go on the offensive against Satan and his ground forces. And he would do this by confronting and casting out demons from people's lives. And what we see as he did is that human beings in some cases could be dominated by the demonic. We see Satan and demons leading people to to harm others. We see them leading people to to harm themselves. We see them causing much destruction and despair and discouragement and even disease in people's lives. Nevertheless, in each instance, when Jesus encountered these powerful spiritual beings, Jesus merely spoke and they submitted to him. He spoke and they scrambled for cover. He spoke and people were delivered and eyes were opened and and hearts came alive. His authority over the spiritual realm was like something that had never been seen. 
Jesus didn't work up a sweat. He didn't roll up his sleeves. He, he just spoke. And they fled. And lives were changed as the veil was lifted and, and as people saw Jesus for who he really was. But not only did Jesus square off against Satan, he squared off against sin too. And not once, not a single time, did he stumble or falter in that regard. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness because it says that in his life on earth, it says he was tempted as we are in every respect, but was without sin. The Apostle John, just a few verses before the one we've been studying today, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, says that in Jesus there is no sin. And it says that Jesus came to us and for us to take away sin. And so through his life, through his perfect life, through his perfect obedience to the Father and his perfect obedience to the law, Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed and where you and I fail too. And so if all have sinned and fallen short, which is what the Bible says, and if the wages of sin is death, which is what the Bible says, tells us, and if Jesus was without sin, then Jesus did not deserve to die. And yet he went to the cross anyways to pay the price that we could not pay for our sins. And, and he died the death that, that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. This is the destruction of the works of the devil in both a cosmic sense as well as in a personal sense. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Paul says that the record of debt that stood against you and I, our debt owed to God because of our sin, he says it was canceled. But it wasn't just canceled without payment. Paul says this debt, this debt that was entirely on us, he says God set it aside, nailing it to the cross, nailing it to Jesus and it says that through this, God disarmed Satan and his forces. It says he put them to, to open shame. He disarmed the powers of darkness and put them to open shame. Now think about this. As Jesus was being spit on and mocked and marred beyond recognition, as he was hanging there crucified, beaten and bloodied and on the brink of death, can you imagine what his followers were possibly thinking in that moment? They must have been absolutely reeling. Everything they were trusting in seemed to be crashing down all around them. And they were surely crying out to God in, in desperation and perhaps even anger. To the followers of Jesus in that moment, the cross was a picture of utter weakness and absolute failure. And what must Satan have been thinking as he watched all this? He was surely swelling up with pride. He was surely celebrating this as his greatest victory of all. Surely Satan thought that somehow, some way, the, the God of this world, as the Bible calls him, he must have thought he had just managed to take, take down the Son of God himself on his home turf. But that's not the end of the story, right? The story was just getting started. At the cross, as devastating as it was, and as much as evil was at work driving forward the events of that day, 
The Father was a step ahead at every single turn. At the cross and in the days following the cross, our God was about to baffle all of heaven and earth with an unimaginable display of love and grace. He was about to confound and put to shame the spiritual forces of evil through a stunning act of power. Far from catching the Father off guard in any way or being some sort of uh, display of weakness, the cross was merely setting the stage for God to speak most powerfully and most profoundly into the human condition as Jesus, three days later, would get up and walk away from the grave. The author of Hebrews says it in this way in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so he conquered death by confronting death and by taking it on, by taking it down, really, for us. But what do we do with all this anyways? What does this really mean for us today in the city of Seattle in the year 2017? What does it mean for us that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil? Because if we're going to be honest, at times it seems like evil has the upper hand in our world. At times, it seems evil is wreaking all sorts of havoc in our lives and in the world around us. And so why is that true if we're told that Jesus dealt this enemy a decisive blow? In 2014, in a a southern province of China, a chef named Peng Fan was preparing a rare delicacy for the menu that night. The particular dish he was working on included as one of its main ingredients the the fresh flesh of a highly poisonous snake known as the Indo-Chinese spitting cobra. And during his preparations, he took this live cobra and he very carefully cut off its head. He cut off the head of this snake and he set that severed head aside. And then he proceeded over the course of the next 20 to 30 minutes to cut and prep the body of the snake that was to be used in that dish that night. And it's around then that diners in the restaurant would later say they heard loud and frantic screams coming from the kitchen. And there was apparently much commotion taking place in the restaurant at that point. And the reason for the commotion was this. You see, after completing his preparations, the chef went to dispose of that snake's severed head that he had set aside. But when he went to pick up that severed snake head, that severed Snakehead very suddenly and very unexpectedly struck this man. The chef was simply disposing of the head of that snake a half an hour after he had cut it off, and the snake bit him, and the snake killed him. You see, snakes and other reptiles can sometimes function for long periods of time, even after being dealt a critical wound. And so even a wounded and defeated animal in some cases can, enemy in some cases rather, can do much damage. And there's a sense in which the Bible tells us that's the very type of thing that's going on in the battle that you and I face as Christians. 
the Bible does teach that in an ultimate sense, Satan is a conquered enemy at this point. He's a defeated foe for many of the reasons that we've been talking about. He was disarmed and defeated and put to open shame. But that does not mean that he's, that he's not still thrashing about, doing as much damage as he can until the time when Jesus comes a second time to, to finish him off for good. And this is precisely why the New Testament writers would continually remind us that the battle that we face, it is ongoing. And we need to be aware and alert to the schemes of this defeated but still very dangerous enemy. Friends, Christmas is a warm and wonderful message to be sure. A warm and wonderful message of Jesus coming to us to to reconcile us, to give us peace with God and to give us peace within. But for the reasons we've been talking about, the message of Christmas, it's also a fighting message. One of the things we see in all this is that when Jesus came, he came ready to fight. He came ready to fight for us. And when you turn to him and trust him, you need to be ready to fight too because the fight is coming. If there's no fight in your Christian life, then there may be something wrong. He may be lulling you to sleep. When you become a Christian, a new warfare has started because you've aligned yourself in a new way with, with this present darkness. And so you need to be ready to fight for yourself and for one another. And you need to be ready to help liberate those still trapped in the darkness and the reality of this battle that we face, the fact that we're in a battle such as this, actually explains quite a bit. It actually helps us understand why things are the way they are, individually and systemically in our lives and in the society around us. It helps explain why there do not seem to be strictly human solutions to, to the problems that plague this world. This battle we face, I think, helps to explain why so many of us battle daily with things like guilt, shame, and fear, with things like anxiety and depression, with things like anger and unforgiveness. This battle, I think, helps to explain why at times we seem to be controlled by addictions to chemicals, to people, and to pleasure. This battle, I think, helps to explain why at times some of us struggle so much in simply trying to read our Bibles pray regularly, and to grow spiritually. Paul says we need to be aware of the enemy's tactics and how he operates. He says do not be outwitted by him and do not be ignorant of his designs. And the truth is that every single one of those things that I just mentioned, guilt and shame and fear and so forth, in order for any one of those to take root in your heart or in your life, requires fundamentally that, like Adam and Eve, you believe one lie or another whispered in your ear by this enemy, one lie or another about God and about yourself or about the world. And so what lies has he been telling you lately? And how are you responding? Because he'll take as much ground as you're willing to give him. But in a very real way, for a Christian, 
He can get in only through a door that you yourself open from the inside. I think this is why the consistent answer we're given in the Bible on how to deal with this enemy and how to deal with this uh, battle that we face is to stand squarely on the truth, to see through the lies, to see through the deception, to expose them as what they are by, by knowing the truth, by believing the truth, by believing the truth about who God is and who He says you are too. It's simply not possible, in fact, to expose the lies and the deception that this enemy seeks to assault us with without first having the truth dwelling richly in our hearts and in our minds. And this is why we study the Scriptures corporately in this very setting each and every week. This is why we open the Scriptures together regularly in our missional communities, exploring God's truths together and exposing together the ways this enemy is seeking to undermine those truths in our hearts. This is also why in our smaller and same-gendered DNA groups, as we call them, we seek to have a safe place where we can be intentionally and lovingly intrusive and accountable in one another's lives. In this way, we fight this uh, fight together, we expose blind spots and vulnerabilities that it, this enemy may be seeking to exploit in our lives that we may not even be able to see on our own. Friends, the bottom line is we do this together. We need to stick together. We need to stand together. We need to fight this enemy together. We need to press into community together with one another committing ourselves to the truth of the Scriptures, committing ourselves to one another's spiritual health and vitality and protection, and committing ourselves to the truth and the beauty of this Gospel and this Jesus who would come to fight for us in the way that He did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You in this moment for Your goodness and for Your grace. We thank You for Your Gospel. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come for us and to fight for us. Thank you for lifting the veil, giving us sight so that we might see you as beautiful. Thank you for setting us free from ourselves, from our sin, from this enemy we face. God, would you empower us as your people to resist this enemy together by seeing through his schemes and his snares, by standing squarely on the truth that you've revealed to us in your scriptures. God, would you give us grace to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.